I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. The Big Three, it could mean a whole host of things in antiquity. It could mean the first triumvirate of Julius Caesar, Pompey and Crassus. It could mean the second triumvirate of Octavian, Mark Antony and Lepidus. For me, I immediately think of the immediate aftermath of Alexander the Great's death and the three key players then, Perdiccas, Craterus and Antipater. But for many, when someone mentions the Big Three, they immediately think of the three great tragedians of ancient Greece, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. And this podcast is all about Sophocles, and in particular, looking at Sophocles' lost plays. Because although seven of his plays survive in full to this day, he wrote so much more. And joining me to talk about these fragments, these lost plays of Sophocles, I was delighted to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Koo from the University of Bristol. Lindsay, as you're about to find out, she is a fantastic communicator. She's a brilliant speaker. She is enthralling with her communication. So it was absolutely amazing to have her on the show to talk through the topic of Sophocles' lost plays. Here's Lindsay. Lindsay, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. No problem, no problem. And especially for a topic like this, because we're talking about Sophocles, one of the greatest tragedians of the ancient world, but this time we're looking at his lost plays. That's right. Yeah, I think people are often a bit surprised to suddenly remember that he didn't just write the seven plays that people have today. That would have been a very kind of short career if that's all that he'd done. He actually wrote, we think, about over 120 plays. So many, many more than than we are accustomed to thinking of. And looking at those can really make us think in really fresh ways about who he was as a dramatist. Absolutely. It seems to emphasise, and we were talking about this just now, isn't it, how in all aspects of literature and ancient history, there is so much that we've lost and that we only have a, a snippet of what was actually written from antiquity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you, if you look at you know, the percentage of what it is that we have in terms of the likely material that was produced, not just in drama, but across all different kinds of media, it's actually quite, quite kind of horrible to think about it and how much we have lost. And I think what's so interesting in, in the case of someone like Sophocles is that the tiny proportion of things that have survived have then had such a profound influence on the way that we think not just about him, but actually about tragedy as a whole genre, ancient drama, the ancient theatre. So you have this kind of paradox where a very tiny amount of material has shaped the way that we think about this entire lost whole. Absolutely, because you mentioned earlier how he is one of, in tragedy's terms, the big three. Yes, that's right. So I think when, when people talk about Greek tragedy nowadays, 
what we really are using that term as a shorthand for often is to refer to Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, oh, the big three as, as they're sometimes termed. So these are three of the dramatists who were competing writing in the 5th century BC. And the reason that we tend to use tragedy just to mean those three is because they are the only tragedians whose works have survived complete. So unsurprisingly, <laughs> um, because they're the only full examples we have of the genre, we tend to just assimilate tragedy with those three particular figures. But of course, it was so much more than that. Of course, of course. Well, let's focus on Sophocles then. And let's start with his background. Normally, when I ask people about people's backgrounds in antiquity, we normally don't know too much. So forgive me for asking this question. But what do we really know about Sophocles's background? And Because this is in the early 5th century BC? Yeah, he's born around 496. He dies around 406, 405. So he lives till he's 90 years or so, a really good long life. And he's actually active as a dramatist for over six decades of that. So he has this incredibly prolific, long, successful career. So we think of him primarily now as a, as a dramatist, but actually he was also active in other ways in public life. He held various state positions. When we're looking at biographical accounts of him, it, as with so many figures, it can be a little bit hard to separate the fact from the fiction. So there are certainly some stories about him which seem to be a bit kind of fanciful and perhaps actually based on elements from his works themselves. This is quite a common thing that happens. Something that he says in a drama that a character says is then assimilated into the life of the, the, the creator of that work. And we also have various other kind of stories about him which relate him to Aeschylus and, and Euripides. There's a kind of desire to see him as that middle figure who's not so old-fashioned as Aeschylus, but not quite as modern as Euripides. And so some of the stories also seem to be a later impulse of fitting him into that very nice little arc. Um, and again, we don't know how true those are. I mean, indeed, and it sounds from what you're saying that most of the stories we know about Sophocles are surrounding his work in tragedy and in that in drama. But you mentioned that he seems to have held office and some high offices in Athens beforehand. Do we know how... Sophocles moves towards the dramatic sphere, moves into that sort of work, as it were? Not really, no. I mean, we're told, for example, that his first victory in the dramatic festivals is in 468. He overlaps in the early part of his career with, with Aeschylus and then in the latter half with um, Euripides. I don't think we really know much about you know, how it was that he came to produce tragedies and satyrdramas. Uh, as I said, a lot of this is fairly uncertain, um, when we look at the biographical tradition. And at this high time in classical Athens following the Persian Wars, how important is the performing of drama for classical Athens? Really important. I mean, the drama plays a really interesting, really central role in, in ancient um, Athenian society. And it's happening not just in Athens, but we tend to focus in on Athens when we talk about the genre. So one important thing is to, to really get rid of any modern preconceptions about what going to the theatre means when we look at the 5th century Athens. You know, nowadays we, we tend to think of going to the theatre as something that you do you know, in the evening, you sit inside, you've probably paid to be there, it's seen as something quite elite. Whereas drama in um, the 5th century in Athens held a really kind of central civic place. It was actually part of uh, dramatic festivals. So most often when we're looking at tragedy, we're talking about the plays that were performed at an annual festival called the Great Dionysia or the City Dionysia. 
And this is a religious festival in worship of the god Dionysus, the god of wine, but also the god of theatre. The theatres are huge, they're obviously outdoors, so you're kind of sitting with lots of your fellow citizens. And if you go to the theatre, you're there for, for several days, because the dramatic festival goes on not just over one day, but over several So if you go to watch tragedies and satyr dramas, you're there for three days watching all of them. So it's a completely different kind of conception of what we think about experiencing theatre. And it holds this really important, central place in, in terms of the way that people were encouraged to think of themselves as part of the city. So going to the theatre and experiencing it with your fellow citizens in this great space, which is right at the foot of the Acropolis, very different from modern ideas of the theatre. Absolutely. It seems to really emphasise, it really seems to be a central part of the classical city's identity. Yes, definitely. Scholars have argued, have looked at all the different ways in which theatre seems to be really deeply enmeshed in Athenian ways of thinking about themselves. So that going to the theatre, watching these characters play certain scenarios and choices out on stage is also a way of prompting you to think about your own identity including in relation to the city or wherever it is that that you happen to come from. It's certainly been argued that it is meant to be more than just a nice day out, but it's actually encouraging you to reflect a bit further. What do we know about the people who performed the plays, who created the plays, the tragedians themselves? Do they have to come from quite a rich background to be able to follow that line of work? So I think Sophocles, certainly we think he was from a a comfortable background because of, of where he ends up. Once again, it's kind of hard to know because a lot of, as I say, a lot of the biographical information we have for these figures can be rather difficult to pull apart the the truth from later fabrications. But yeah, I mean, it's unlikely that you would be able to be successful in this way if you were coming from very little education, for example. A lot of these works really show profound knowledge of myth, but also of great literary technique, of deep intertextuality with other works. So I think we'd certainly have to assume um, a certain kind of profile for some of these figures. Absolutely. And it's it's showing their profile. I love what you were saying earlier, how getting rid of this modern conception of theatre, you know, maybe you'll go to the theatre once a month or maybe once a year or once half a year. But here in these festivals, you'd watch several different plays over one, two, three days in a row. Yeah, exactly. And more than that, so the, the again, the um, the tragedies and the satyr dramas are just a small part of the whole festival. So it actually starts with other kinds of competitions, choral competitions, where you'd have choirs of men and boys singing, and those would represent the tribes of Athens. Then you would have the presentation of the tragedies and the satyr dramas that had been pre-selected to compete that year. So each playwright is, is offering a programme of three tragedies followed by a satyr drama. So that, that's quite a long day at the theatre. You've got to sit through those four different works. And we really have to think of the plays as, as being part of that full programme. And for example, in the case of, of Aeschylus, he very often connected those four plays so that the four different instalments, three tragedies and a satyr drama, told a kind of continuous story or dealt with the same perhaps the same family, maybe several generations of it, or something that was connected. And then at the end of that, you also had the comedies. So it really is a a completely different, quite immersive, really involved way of thinking about going to the theatre. And talking about Sophocles in particular, you mentioned that link between tragedies, as it were, to keep on that theme if people are watching them one after another. 
I think perhaps the most famous trio of Sophocles is the Theban trio. Do you think this was why Sophocles might have done this? Because thinking of these three plays being performed in a row? That's actually a bit of a misnomer. Um, They are often referred to as the Theban trilogy, but that's only because we now group them together because they all deal with the members of the same family. They weren't Ah. presented as a trilogy and they're actually really far apart um, in terms of their, their dating and they're not in the chronological order of the events that happens in them. So the Oedipus at Colonus example was actually his very last play performed posthumously. So this is again a kind of distorting effect of the fact that only those seven has survived. We're so desperate to see the links between them that we put those three together when actually they were separated by by quite a lot of years. Having said that, I mean, of course, what we do see in those plays, which deal with the same characters, so Oedipus and his daughter's Antigone and Ismene and, and his sons, we do see Sophocles returning again to themes and ideas and characters that he's treated previously. So I think, you know, it's not unreasonable to to think that he, obviously he was aware of what he'd written earlier, <laughs> and that he was developing and coming back to, returning to characters that he had treated, but they weren't originally grouped together in their performance. Okay, okay. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) And what are the recurring themes that we see? Well, let's focus on those three Theban plays first of all. What are some of the main recurring themes we see in them? So if we just kind of go through them really quickly, we've got um, Oedipus the King, which of course tells the story of Oedipus who discovers that he has in fact killed his own father and married his own mother and, and had children with her. And in response to that discovery, he puts out his own eyes. In Antigone, we pick up the story of his daughter, Antigone, and his sons, Polynices and Eteocles, who have killed each other, one defending the city of Thebes and one attacking it. The king, Creon, decrees that the traitor Polynices cannot be buried, and his sister Antigone defies the law in order to bury him and is herself sentenced to death. And then Oedipus at Colonus, which is the one that people always forget about, is the aged Oedipus at the end of his life, who's been exiled, comes to Athens, accompanied by Antigone, and there he is kind of he he dies but in some way he becomes transformed into a a protective presence for um, the city as a whole so you can see those are not uh, kind of played around a little bit with chronological order there so the themes that we can see especially in the the Oedipus and the Antigone are in each case we have a kind of strong figure who the drama is based on whether that's Oedipus or Antigone who is kind of faced with some crisis or some great decision, makes a decision and kind of pursues that irresolutely to to the conclusion. So in the case of Oedipus, he's so determined to find out who the killer of Laius is, that he's so determined not to let this question go and to follow it to the end. And obviously what he finds there is that it's actually himself. And in the case of Antigone, she is absolutely determined to bury her brother, even though she knows that this is going to lead to her death. So the similarities there have often led people to think about this being a kind of trademark of Sophoclean tragedy. It's often referred to as the Sophoclean hero, this idea of a figure who is so uncompromising, often quite stubborn, often quite kind of unattractive in that. Um, Other figures try and persuade them to change their mind, but they they just don't listen. So I think that's certainly one major theme that that comes through from that particular selection of plays, uh, this idea of a, a heroic figure who sticks to their guns, you know, no matter what, even when it actually turns out not to be so great for them in the end. There's also issues, of course, of, of family, as we'd expect, with this 
particularly complex set of characters. We're thinking about the relationships between parents and children, between siblings, and how when we look at this particular family, which is marked by patricide, by incest, by the constant turning in of family relations on one another, it gets us to think through how those relationships can go so catastrophically wrong and and what kinds of situations they can be tested under as well. And then another big one would be, especially with the Oedipus, the question of fate. So was he always fated to do these? How does that relate to the decisions that he seems to be making for himself in the play? So yeah, lots of really kind of juicy themes that we could get into there. Absolutely. The stubborn hero, fate, (laughs) family. I mean, are these themes, these really major themes, which can really appeal, I can imagine, to an audience, are they why especially the characters of Oedipus and Antigone continue to be so popular down to the present day? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they they, they touch on really big questions, right? The nature of, um, of fate, of the, the role of the gods, of what's predetermined, how our decisions earlier on in life can <laughs> lead to later consequences. So that's certainly one way in which they, they touch on questions that are kind of understandable and relevant, even though these characters experience them obviously in really magnified circumstances. But the reason that those two figures in particular have been so popular is also a result of the way that many, many generations of audiences and readers and and especially thinkers and theorists have engaged with these two texts. So with Oedipus, we have Aristotle very early on in the reception of Sophocles, who singles this play out as having really excellent qualities. And then, of course, jumping ahead in time, we have the Oedipus complex. We have um, the engagement of psychoanalysis with this figure as someone who is paradigmatic for thinking through aspects of the the human condition. So I think probably most people are familiar with Oedipus through that particular intervention in his history, that we know immediately that he gives rise to this particular modern idea about psychology. And in the case of Antigone, because she's she's such an engaging figure, this idea of a young teenage girl who stands up to state authority in defence of what she thinks is right that has been immensely appealing to audiences across many ages. We get, you know, the romantic poets engaging with her. We get a really strong Victorian reception of her, seeing her almost as a Christian martyr, you know, going to her death for what she thinks is right. And in more modern scenarios, we get her being thought of as a paradigm for quite modern forms of resistance, right? Women especially, who are able to stand up to state authority. So I think there's also a certain timelessness about these characters which means they can be picked up and adapted to all kinds of new circumstances political circumstances which obviously are very different from what Sophocles was thinking of. Well no it is extraordinary the lifespan the longevity of these stories and how they remain popular throughout history and especially in regards to Antigone does it really emphasize because back then obviously her determination to bury her brother that must have been also really emphatic for the audience when we consider how important death and burial rights were at that time. Absolutely. I mean, this is a really fundamental thing, right? So we we do get some texts which talk about traitors not being allowed to be buried within the city boundaries, for example. But we all know, kind of in in ancient Greek culture, that to not be buried, to be thrown out, you know, for the dogs and the birds to eat, is something really horrific um, in terms of religious thought, as well as I guess, what we might call morality. Ideas like that go all the way back to Homer. So we find, you know, the mutilation of of Hector's corpse by Achilles and he leaves him out to rot and the gods are so kind of horrified by this, they actually preserve the body to stop it from from decaying. So on the one hand, yeah, there's something really undeniably correct about 
what she's doing, and, and that, in fact, is affirmed within the play itself. On the other hand, we do have a young girl openly defying her uncle, who is now her legal guardian, the head of her family, the king of the city. She's totally obstinate. She doesn't listen to any kind of common sense. She's from a family that has not made very good decisions in the past anyway. So there is, I think, this this kind of really uh, fruitful, really rich clash of the ways that the audience would have responded to her as a character. I mean, they, you know, they, they probably might have agreed in principle with what she was doing, but they'd have been horrified if their own daughters had done this. So there's that, that tension, I think, between these two different sides of it. Do you think that that was something that Sophocles really wanted to emphasise in his audience, this they're not exactly sure how to react with their emotions? Yeah, I mean, very often things are not black and white. <laughs> and sometimes when, when they appear to be, it's actually kind of ironic. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking here of Sophocles' uh, Electra, we're playing which, you know, Electra and Orestes murder their own mother by the end of the play. And this play has been subject to lots of different interpretations. On the face of it, it seems as though they have no misgivings whatsoever. They just kind of forge ahead. They never question the correctness of, of what they're doing, avenging uh, that their mother killed their father. So they're, they're taking revenge for that. But then many modern readers especially have thought, well, this must be deeply ironic, right? It seems as though everything's black and white, but it can't be because it's about matricide. So I think, yeah, there's always more layers than might appear on the first glance. You mentioned Electra just there, so let's have a look at those four other plays that we know of. Sure. So what are these four other plays? Right, so we've got the Ajax, um, about the suicide of the, the hero at Troy. We have the Philoctetes, this is another Trojan War play about the hero Philoctetes, who at very near the start of the Trojan War was bitten by a snake, the wound separated and became really smelly and disgusting. His comrades couldn't bear to be in the presence of it, so they just abandoned him on an island. But then at the end of the war, it turns out they actually need him to win it. So they, they go and try and get him back. We have the women of Trachis, which tells the story of Deianira, the wife of Heracles, who ends up killing her husband, essentially by accident. She thinks that what she's given him is a love potion, but it turns out to be poison. So we have this great paradox where the manliest of Greek heroes is killed by his incredibly feminine wife, is that all the ones that we've talked about? Yeah. That's then we have Electra, don't you? Yeah. Electra, yeah, um, which we've mentioned. I mean, from what you're saying there, it's, it's quite staggering. The importance, the amount of tragedies from this period that seem to really be focused either on the Trojan War or just mythology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Trojan War is a, a favourite topic of Sophocles. This is another way in which the fragments have kind of distorted our conception of him, because as you said at the start, we tend to think of him of the Theban plays. We think that he wrote about Oedipus and Antigone and, and that family. But actually, when we look at all of the fragments, by far the most common thing he wrote about was Troy, was the Trojan epic cycle. He, he just loved that material. And we get writers in antiquity who even refer to him as a, a tragic Homer, because he becomes so closely identified with that particular set of, of mythology. But this dealing so much with myth and mythological characters is a pattern that we find not just with Sophocles, but really across the genre as a whole. So it's kind of well known that in general, the genre of tragedy doesn't really tend to treat real life people, historical events, but it, it likes to look back into that mythical time and to use those characters. I mean, very often to think through contemporary ideas to engage with things that would have been relevant to the time of the audience but it does it by looking back to previous mythical generations. 
Ah, so they use it as a, a scope, as a way, as a medium to reflect current issues, but they reflect it through mythology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think very similar to you know, drama and, and forms of creative output in, in all different times and places. I think it's very hard for any artistic work to be entirely divorced from you know, resonances from the society and the culture in which it's produced. But the way that tragedy most often does that is by looking back to these big mythological figures that the audience would have been really aware of as well. So that's interesting because you're also interacting with a kind of cultural knowledge they have of these figures with all the other plays they, and poems and songs they might have already heard about these figures with the artwork that they would have seen representing them. So they become part of this really rich cultural network um, contributing to contemporary thought, but thinking through these familiar figures. It seems exactly that. I mean, especially from what you were saying, uh, how the fragments seem to reveal that Sophocles focused largely on the Trojan War, it suggests that he expected his uh, audience to have this knowledge of the Trojan War beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Trojan epic cycle, including the Iliad and the Odyssey, but also many other epics, which also now sadly are lost to us, was just kind of bread and butter stuff, right? I mean, the, you know, his audience would have known these myths, would have been really familiar with them. And because of that, you can play on that knowledge, you can subvert it, you can introduce kind of surprising elements. You're starting from a shared cultural heritage of these figures, which forms a backdrop to these plays. And from what you were saying earlier, so the fragments that we've found and it sounds like we're continuing to find, they are revealing this different side of Sophocles. And one of the first things is that actually he focused most of his plays on the Trojan War itself. Yeah, so it's not most, not a kind of overall majority, but proportionally he, he looked at that material far more than any other epic tradition. And yeah, so we have over, I think, 40 or so plays that uh, both tragedies and satyr dramas that really engaged with this material. And one interesting thing is that he uses kind of every single part of that set of myths to create drama. So we think that he probably wrote a play about in the very beginning of the Trojan War story, which is actually Zeus deciding to bring about an event that's going to clear the population of the earth. And that may have been a, a satyr drama. And then we also have a play about the death of Odysseus, so the death of the very last hero to, to get home from the war. So he's really covering this material fully in his long career, which, remember, spans over six decades. He's almost kind of creating his own <laughs> kind of epic cycle in a way by writing plays about all these different characters and all these different episodes from that set of myths. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, forgive my complete ignorance, but what is the difference between a satire drama and a tragedy? So that's a really good question. Um, and once again, this, the fact that we so often refer to Sophocles as a tragedian shows the distortion that the surviving plays have had because the seven plays that survive are tragedies. But in the ancient world, you couldn't just be a tragedian. You had to write tragedy and satire drama. So as I said earlier, the format of the, the dramatic competition at the Great Dionysia was that you competed with a set of four plays, three tragedies followed by a satire drama. So by necessity, anyone who's a tragedian is also writing satire plays. So these are plays where the chorus is made up of satyrs. And these are the half man, half equid creatures that are the companions of Dionysus. We very often see them on ancient vase painting. The things that they're really renowned for are drunkenness, you know, libido, <laughs> um, have being permanently in kind of states of sexual arousal, that being full of bravado, but actually quite cowardly when it comes to taking action. So they're completely different to these really sober, serious figures that we think of when we think of tragedy. So if you think about the viewing experience for the audience, they've sat through these three plays, which not always, but often tended to have quite sombre <laughs> um, things happening in them. Quite heavy, yeah. I mean, they don't always end unhappily. Some of them actually end quite well, but there's, you know, a serious tone. And then the actors would go off, recostume, come back on for the final play, and they've transformed themselves into these kind of cavorting, drunken satyrs. And what very often happens in these plays is, again, they're mythically based. So they take as their subject a familiar myth from previous tradition, and they just kind of drop the satyrs into it, where they cause lots of mayhem by, uh, by attempting to insert themselves into the myth, by attempting to be the hero, by attempting to, you know, rape the women or, or kind of otherwise insert themselves into these stories. So it's a kind of subversive comic take on these traditional stories. And it's really important that, that that's the last play the audience would have watched that day. That's the final image that they would have gone out of the theatre having experienced. The satyrs, of course, are the companions of Dionysus. They're his followers and they worship him. And we need to remember that the whole context of the festival is in worship of Dionysus. So it could be a way of reaffirming the connection of drama with its patron god as that last image that the audience had as they left the theatre. It definitely feels quite more lighthearted, doesn't it, after you saying after three quite heavy plays to have something like that at the end of the day? Yeah, absolutely. So again, people have advanced many, many different theories as to what satyr drama is doing as part of the tragic competitions. I mean, one fairly influential theory is exactly that, that it's comic relief, right? That it would have just been too much to sit through three plays of people you know, blinding themselves and, and terrible kinds of deaths and family curses and so on. Um, and that this would have been more light-hearted. I think that that's not always the case. As I said, some tragedies actually end on a fairly uplifting note. So we have we might have a cycle of violence, but it might end in some resolution. So I think that often is a little bit too simplistic. But certainly what we do have is this drastic shift in tone. 
And also we're entering a completely different kind of world with the satyr drama in that it is fantastical, right? You can't imagine, you know, in Oedipus the King, you know, a satyr suddenly turning up. There's two different worldviews that would collide there. And very often in satyr drama, we find much greater use, for example, of kind of monster figures, of ogre figures, of magical objects, of the gods being being characters as well. So they're not just changing the tone and changing the chorus's identity, but they're almost shifting us into a parallel universe where we have the same mythical figures, but we're now in this fantastical world of the satyrs and many more types of things are possible there. And in regards to the fragments, how many of the fragments of Sophocles that survive of his plays, roughly how many of these are of satyr plays that we know of? That's a good question. Again, one of the interesting things about the fragments is that the satyr dramas are actually some of the best represented of his works. So the play for which we have the the most extensive papyrus fragment of Sophocles is actually a satyr drama. It's the Ichneutai or the Trackers. So that's a really important one. We also have fairly substantial papyri of a play called Inachus, which some people think may have been a satyr drama, but that's sometimes under, under debate. And then we have lots of other little snippets. (laughs) Sometimes it can actually be very difficult to distinguish just from a set of fragments what genre the play is. And this again is where some kinds of assumptions often come into play. So if the fragment contains anything to do with sex or or wine, (laughs) in the past there's been a critical tradition to assume that that must be a satyr drama or food or banqueting because those are seen as very light, jovial, satiric themes. But, you know, if all you have is a one-word fragment mentioning a banquet, really that could come from any kind of play. There there are some plays which we know are definitely satiric, and then we have others where it's not certain in some cases. Before we go on focusing on some of these these fragments in particular, just a few questions beforehand, because you mentioned the papyri just there, which begs the question, where do we really find these fragments in what form? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think when people think about a fragment... We often tend to think quite literally that it is um, a piece broken off from an original whole. So most people probably think that these are are actual physical papyri and parchment. And that's certainly the case for some dramas. But actually, by far, the, the more common type of fragment is what we call a book fragment. And that's a piece of the play that has been preserved in another author. So that could be really any kind of author from the ancient world. One particularly common source of these are ancient lexica, so ancient dictionaries, essentially. So they might say, you know, in this play by Sophocles, he uses this rare word, and then they give the word. And that would count as a fragment, because that that is the piece of that play that has been preserved. We also get much longer pieces quoted, so um, Athenaeus, who writes uh, a really long work called the Dapeness of Fistai, or the, the kind of educated people having dinner together, um, his very learned banqueters quoting tons of bits of, of dramas at each other. And that's a great source for us because that preserves much longer fragments. So that's actually the more common type of fragment, a deliberate quotation by another author from some period in antiquity, which could be fairly contemporary or it could be much, much later. I mean, we also get sources from you know the 10th century AD, so very far removed in time. And that's by far more common than the papyri. So it's a mixture of literature and archaeology, but the literature, from what you're saying, is more prevalent. Yeah, so there's more of it, but each kind presents different kinds of challenges. 
So the papyri often tend to be much longer, right? So at Canutai, we have hundreds of lines of, because that is a, a physical papyrus that was preserved in the sands of Egypt. So even though it has holes in it, <laughs> we do get a really good sense of the progression of quite a lot of a central scene of, of that drama. So even though there may be fewer papyri, those fragments are often longer and more informative because we have whole scenes preserved in some form. With the book fragments, there's many, many more of them, but often they're really short. So a lot of them, when you look at Sophocles, are actually just one word, right? Because they are preserved in ancient dictionaries, or very short, maybe two words or a sentence, or at most a couple of lines. So even though in terms of the quantity of words, there may be more of them, we can often do a bit less with them because the context is more challenging. I mean, let's focus on a few of the examples now. And I know you wanted to focus on three, and I think you mentioned one just now, that very long satyr play, forgive me, I cannot for the life of me say the name of it. <laughs> the Ichnutai, or you can also call it the Trackers, which is what that means. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, so what does the fragment about the Trackers tell us? Okay, so this is a satyr drama that's based, on, again, on, on an ancient myth. And this tells a story which is also told in the Homeric Hymn to Hermes which is how the god Hermes, when he was an infant, he'd really just been born, committed this really amazing feat of actually stealing the cattle of Apollo. He then uses the, the stolen cattle to create the first lyre. So it's about the invention of this particular instrument. So in the Ichnutai, as I said earlier, Sophocles has taken this well-known story and just dropped the satyrs into it. So the satyrs are kind of engaged by Apollo to go and look for his cattle. So they track us to the cave where Hermes is inside, and then they hear the noise of this newly invented musical instrument emanating from it, and they're completely kind of overcome by this and terrified. So we don't have all the play. We have a, a kind of substantial chunk of it, um, and that's the, the story that, that it's essentially telling. But what does this, once again, does this really emphasise how they're dropping this more light-hearted mythical creature into a well-known mythical story. Yeah, and, and that's the way the genre seems to, to have worked. The best example, because it's our only fully surviving satyr drama, is actually one by Euripides called The Cyclops, which tells the very well-known story that we know of from the Odyssey, where Odysseus ends up on the island of the Cyclops and is imprisoned in his cave and then has to blind him and escape. And what Euripides does in Cyclops is exactly the same as what we find here, so in that play, Odysseus turns up on the island and says, you know, oh, why are there all these satyrs here? What are they doing? So the satyrs, again, have been inserted into a story that traditionally they don't belong to. And then, of course, they, they complicate it, they cause havoc. But by the end, the story ends as we think it should. And that seems to have been a fairly typical kind of template for these dramas. Again, it, sometimes it's a bit dangerous to make generalisations because we have so few of these but we think that seems to have been a fairly common way of, of creating the plots of these dramas. It sounds like say, they put the satyrs in the middle of the play, as it were, but even though they may create chaos, confusion, a bit of lightheartedness, back in those times, of course, not today, <laughs> but at the end of the play, it doesn't seem to affect the outcome that they're expecting. Yes, I think that is correct, that by the end, the myth is kind of back in its proper place. So you have the story, you think you know how it's going to end, the satyrs turn up, try and cause as much havoc as possible, but they never quite manage to completely overturn it. So 
So one pattern that we often find when the story involves, you know, a young girl or nymph is that the satyrs make quite aggressive sexual advances towards that person or they compete to try and win the hand of someone. Obviously, if they actually succeeded in that, that would be unthinkable, right, in terms of the way that that myth would then develop. It's almost like, you know, science fiction, thinking how that, that story could go off in a different direction. And so the satyrs always fail. They never reach their objective. They never manage to take on that heroic role, that role of the, the divine lover. So I think one expectation of the genre must have been that it would end as we were expecting. But part of the fun of it is seeing how we get there. Right, how, almost despite what the satyrs are doing, the, the story ends in a way that we think it should. So coming back to Euripides' Cyclops, you know, it was never going to end with the Cyclops eating Odysseus, right? That, again, that's unthinkable in terms of mythical tradition. We know it's going to end with Odysseus overcoming him and leaving the island. So it never quite manages to completely overturn our expectations for the myth. And... Going on to tragedy now, what examples do we have of tragedy plays by Sophocles that we know of from the fragments? What examples? Yeah, well, tons. <laughs> so, the, the, um, so as I said earlier, we think he wrote over 120 plays, possibly 123 is a number that we can very often come to if we combine different sources. And if you look at the fragments, which sometimes are as brief as just an attested title, we can more or less make it up to that number. So we actually have a fairly good idea of, of probably the titles of almost all of what Sophocles wrote. Again, it, sometimes it's a bit unclear because a play might have two different titles and so there might be some doubling up going on. But if we look at the fragments, we actually get, I think, a fairly good overview of, of all of his work in terms of the subject matter and the titles. Then within that, some of those plays are very poorly represented. So as I said, it might just literally be the title or it might just be a few words or a few fragments. Very often, because we know the title, we can kind of make very broad assumptions about what might have happened in it because these figures are so well known. So if you have a play about, you know, Iphigenia, you can be fairly certain it's about her sacrifice or we can often map the stories onto these figures. But then there are a couple of plays like the Ichnutai and like some other tragedies, where we do have much more substantial text. And then we can start to do a little bit more with that and to try and figure out not just what story was treated, but how it was treated. What were these characters like? What themes did they raise? What unusual things happened in it? How would it change the way that we think about tragedy if we took these plays a little bit more seriously? And which particular tragedies did you have in mind? Yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of um, share with you a, a couple. Uh, one is, the first one is a play that I've been thinking about for a number of years now. It's called The Tereus. And this tells a story that is fairly well known from later ancient sources. So it's probably best known now because Ovid also writes about it in the Metamorphoses. But Sophocles wrote a tragedy called Tereus, which is about two sisters, daughters of the king of Athens. They're called Procne and Philomela. Procne is married to Tereus, the king of Thrace. So she goes off to Thrace to live with him and they have a child, a son. She misses her sister, so she asks Tereus to fetch her for a visit. But on the way, Tereus actually rapes Philomela and then mutilates her by cutting out her tongue so that she can't tell anyone what's happened. So it's a really you know, horrific myth. It's incredibly violent. But when Philomela arrives in Thrace, 
somehow, and we're not told exactly how, which is a bit frustrating, she weaves a story of what's happened and gives this to her sister. She obviously can't speak anymore, so she represents it through weaving, and the sisters reunite, and then Procne takes revenge by killing her and Tyrus's own son and cooking him and serving him up to his own father. And then after that, Tyrus realises what's happened or is told what's happened and chases the women to try and exact revenge. And then the gods turn all three of them into birds. So, I mean, this is just a completely fantastic story. You know, it's it's violent, it's gory, but it's also um, so fascinating. It's about female solidarity, it's about violence, it's about revenge. And we know all of that because the story is attested widely in other sources. But Sophocles also treated it in this tragedy, for which we actually have quite a few fragments. And these are essentially book fragments, so fragments that are preserved in in other authors. But then a really exciting thing happened a few years ago. (laughs) So in 2016, a new fragment of this, a papyrus fragment, was published. And this fragment is part of the Oxyrhynchus collection. So this is the collection of papyri housed in Oxford that actually was discovered over 100 years ago now, but it takes a lot of time to work through and identify and publish these. And this was recognised as being from the Tyrius because the beginning of it overlapped directly with the end of a fragment that we previously knew about, a book fragment which is securely attributed to that play. So this is immensely exciting because suddenly we know what happens next in that scene. We have a brand new piece of of text by Sophocles that only was discovered four years ago. So I think there's often a preconception that there's nothing new in the ancient world, we've got all our material, nothing new is going to emerge, but often that's simply not true, and and this discovery shows that. It's, It's really exciting to hear, especially with these fragments, how we are finding more and more even in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this especially is, is a kind of really exciting discovery. When you actually look at the new papyrus fragment in itself, it actually doesn't look that impressive because it's quite heavily mucilated. Um, and we don't have full lines, we only have kind of bits of lines. But actually, scholars have, have been using it to think through the implications of how it links on to that scene that we already knew about. So it follows directly on from a, quite a famous, quite a beautiful fragment that we knew about previously, in which a speaker, a female speaker, talks about how marriage is a really miserable condition for women. And she says, you know, of all the creatures that live, we women are the most unfortunate because we have to get married, we're pushed away from our home, we're sold, we're sent to to homes which are abusive. And the new papyrus fragment links on to the end of that. And it shows that shortly after this, a new character enters that we didn't know about previously, who is a shepherd. And when we look at tragedy, shepherds always enter on stage because they're bringing some kind of news, right? Their job means that they're out in the countryside, they see things happening, and then they come into the city and they tell people things that have happened. So we can now start to think a bit more creatively um, about where that scene might have fitted in the play as a whole. It also seems to confirm that the character who's speaking is Procne, the, the wife of Tyrius, because of the way that the chorus address her. So suddenly this new piece of text, even though in itself looks fairly unprepossessing, it unlocks a whole load of new questions that we can ask about the the fragment that we already knew of. Brilliant. It just further shows how ancient history is not dead and we're learning so much more about it every day. It's like adding pieces of a puzzle together. It's absolutely fantastic. I love that. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. And I think it's a good way of reminding us, of kind of unsettling those assumptions that we had. Tragedy is such a 
a well-known genre and so we think we know what it means but these new discoveries can unsettle that and make us think about it again. So let's have a talk about the other tragedy from the fragments that I know you mentioned earlier before we started, the Niobe. Yes. What do we know about this? The story here, again fairly well known from other mythical sources, is Niobe who very foolishly boasts that she has more children than the mother of the gods Apollo and Artemis. She's better than her because she's been more fertile. And so of course retribution follows fairly swiftly and her children are killed by those two gods, by Apollo and Artemis. And we have a, a fragment of the play in which Apollo says, presumably to, to his sister, to Artemis, can you see that one hiding inside? Won't you shoot an arrow at her as quickly as possible? Right, so again, unfortunately, this is another really violent story. But this is really fascinating because the immediacy of those lines, saying, you know, won't you, won't you aim an arrow at her before she can hide out of sight? That seems to suggest something potentially quite new about the representation of violence on stage in Greek tragedy. So it's kind of a truism. People often say there's no violence on stage in Greek drama. Instead, it's off stage. It's reported. But what seems to be happening here is that we have these two gods appearing on stage, inciting each other to murder the daughters of Niobe, who perhaps they're on stage, but perhaps more likely are kind of inside the building. So we don't actually see them, but we see the gods there shooting at them and killing them. Um, And then there's a later um, fragment as well, where one of the daughters of Niobe says, do not shoot an arrow at me. So there seems to have been some kind of extremely exciting, but also violent and, and terrifying scene in which these two gods were kind of in front of the spectator's eyes, killing the children of Niobe. And so this is another fascinating moment where the fragments can make us think in new ways about what was possible on the ancient stage. If we just looked at the plays that survive, we have nothing like this. Right? There's, no, there's nothing kind of comparable to the, the energy of, of the, the particular kind of violence that we find here of two gods actually in front of the spectator's eyes committing these acts. So... I think this is a really nice example of how, once again, taking the fragments into account can perhaps challenge some of our preconceptions of what tragedy could do, what, it, what, it, um, what its limitations were. So in regards to the fragments, they don't just tell us more about Sophocles himself and the sort of plays that he created. It can also tell us more about the structure of the Athenian dramatic stage or the classical Greek dramatic stage as a whole. Absolutely, yeah. And we we do have this very distorted view that comes from just looking at the the plays that have survived. Another example, this isn't Sophocles, but um, uh, one other thing that's very preconception that was often thought about Greek tragedy was that it tends to not change location all that much, that it tends to be set in one place. I mean, actually, if you look even the surviving plays, that's not always true, right? We have plays which do change location. But we know of a play by Aeschylus, which is reported to have had, I think it's five different scene changes. So that is you know, beyond the realms of anything we would have thought possible if we just looked at the plays that survive. So it may well be that a lot of the ideas that we've developed about the, the constraints of tragedy are purely based on this very small sample of what was originally an incredibly diverse and rich and exciting and often quite boundary-pushing field. 
but it happens that the plays that have survived don't necessarily represent everything that the stage was capable of. Well, from what you're saying then, it sounds very much like the fragments are a key source for understanding the style and the poetic, well, the poetic and the dramatic style of Sophocles and also so much more. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think they're, they're absolutely fascinating. There's so much material. There's so much exciting work being done on it now. And I think scholars are increasingly realising what we can do with this material goes beyond trying to just work out what happened in the play, right? Taking the fragments and trying to put them into an order and saying, then this happened and then this character did this. But actually thinking, how can we use this material to think through the kinds of big questions that we use texts like the Oedipus and, and the Antigone to think through? Of course, in some cases, that's extremely challenging. When you only have a couple of words, you probably can't really do that with the play. But when you do have more substantial pieces, I think there are new questions that we can ask. And it also challenges us as scholars to rethink some of the assumptions that we've been working with. Right? Why is it that we are so interested, for example, in Sophocles, in thinking about the Sophoclean hero? Because when we look at the fragmentary plays, we don't really see many traces of that kind of figure. He actually wrote about all different kinds of characters who don't always follow that pattern of behaviour. So there's a good example of the way that a very strong tradition of thinking about Sophocles has been dictated by a tiny sample that might actually be quite unrepresentative of the original whole. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like we can learn just as much, if not more, from the fragments than we do the actual complete plays. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> as long as we're careful, yeah, and cautious. And sometimes it's a bit frustrating, but yeah, I think there's much more to be done. Absolutely. And just to finish off, because I know that you've written about it recently, one of these topics on the fragments, the portrayal of women. Yeah, that's right. So I, I was looking actually at um, the Tyrius, which we were talking about earlier, which to me is so fascinating because it shows a relationship between sisters. And that's a relationship that often we don't tend to think about in tragedy. So we very often think about parent-child relationships, or when it comes to siblings, we think about sister and brother. So a very famous example of that in tragedy is Orestes and Electra, who have a long tradition, a long scholarly history of, of being interrogated as an exemplar of sister-brother relationships. But the relationship between two women, between two sisters, is one that actually very rarely gets much attention. And when it does, it's often a bit dismissive. So it looks, for example, at Antigone and her sister Ismene in the Antigone and says, oh, they're just different. They, they contrast and that's all there is to it. But in Tyrius, we get this really fascinating story where actually the bond of sisterhood is right at the centre of it. Right? Procne takes revenge for her sister. Right? She, she acts with her and they work together there's a collaboration between the two of them, even though one of them is silent, she's been horribly mutilated, she's had her tongue cut off, the other is active, she kills her own son in order to avenge this terrible thing that has been done to her sister. So it's, it's really powerful as an exploration of that relationship. And this goes back to the point we made right at the beginning about the ways that these texts can also speak in new ways to contemporary concerns. This is also a really powerful myth for contemporary feminist thought as well. We can use it in ways that Sophocles would never have dreamed of, right? But I think by using this story for thinking through the implications of female solidarity, of sisters acting together, of you know the, what happens when the revenge they take is actually itself really horrific and really violent. So I think it's an incredibly important text in all kinds of ways. 
Absolutely right. And I think that's a great way to finish linking back to the start right there. And Lindsay, the title of this book is called? Oh, so this is um, a a co-edited volume that I've recently published with my uh, colleague, Professor Patrick Finglass, called um, Female Characters in Fragmentary Greek Tragedy, which uh, does exactly what it says in the title. It's a collection of fantastic essays looking at all different kinds of important female characters from the tragedies. So it's asking, you know, if we didn't have Antigone, Medea, Electra, and instead we had um, these other female characters, what would the study of tragedy look like? Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.